to Acts chapter 17. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts together, and we come to Acts chapter 17 now. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you just flag them, and they'll put one in your hand, and please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 17, we've been a couple of weeks uh, in it, and uh, we'll finish up the chapter today, or at least we've been in much longer than a couple of weeks, but dealing with Paul in Athens. But let's pick up our reading this morning in verse 22. And then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I found, even found, an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And therefore, the one you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life, uh, gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. It'll be in verse 29 that we'll pick our study up this morning. And therefore, since we are the offspring of God... We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of all of this by raising him from the dead." And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you that the truth that is found in it, your voice that is in this book is going to outlive the heavens and the earth, that it is going to have the final say not only in human history, but on the history of every single individual human being who's ever lived or ever will live, including ours in this room. Thank you, Lord, for loving us the way that you do, and then thank you for the clarity with which you uh, speak concerning the issues that are most important in our lives and this uh, life that is but a vapor on this side of eternity, especially the things concerning your Son, salvation, the forgiveness of sins in a relationship with you. We pray, Lord, that as we study this morning, those of us who've known you and perhaps known you a long time, that you would give us a fresh wonder at the salvation that you have provided us with We pray for each man and woman that stands before you right now, that is in the middle of their search for the meaning of life. 
And you love them. You've created them, Lord. And we pray that you would use this sermon this morning to lead them to your Son and the salvation that is found in him. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit upon each of our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he is in the city of Athens alone while he awaits the arrival of Silas and Timothy from the city of Berea uh, to join him there. Upon coming into the city of Athens, Paul continued his uh, method and pattern of endeavoring to reach a city with the gospel and with the added desire of trying to establish a church there by starting in the Jewish synagogue. And so in the city on the Saturdays, he would go to this Jewish synagogue and he would reason with the God-fearers and the Jews that were there and showing them from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was and is indeed the Messiah. The rest of the week he went out into the marketplace, the mall, so to speak, of Athens, and he began to speak with people individually uh, about the gospel, about God's offer of salvation to mankind through faith in his Son. And so he engaged in these personal uh, conversations with people, and in the course of doing so, certainly in a philosophical center like Athens, it wasn't long before he found himself in conversation with uh, the Stoics and the Epicureans, two great philosophies of, of, of that uh, age, or dominant philosophies, perhaps how I should put it. They listened to Paul, and their curiosity was stirred, and they desired to hear, as they were listening to bits and pieces of what he was saying, They wanted to hear him uh, give the full presentation of what it is that he believed about life and the meaning of life and God and so forth. And so they invited him to come to the Areopagus, uh, Mars Hill there, and to address the council of the Areopagus and uh, and to uh, teach them whatever it was that he was teaching. And the Areopagus was made up of, the council of the Areopagus was made up of the most highly esteemed philosophers in all of Athens and all of Greece and in all of the Roman Empire uh, at the time. Now, in the course of doing so, and, and as he's you know there and and uh, uh, begins this uh, uh, explanation of what it is that he's preaching. Uh, on, uh, on the streets of Athens, uh, Paul began to explain to them, of course, in full, and, uh, and he fully took advantage of the invitation that was given to him. And more than that, the Holy Spirit recorded the sermon. So it has something to say to us as Christians today. And in recording this sermon, the Holy Spirit has given us what I think is a very useful model in how to present the gospel Uh, to a a secular person or to a secular society, uh, to a group of people who have no knowledge of the Bible, uh, no background in the Bible at all. You might wonder as you've uh, talked with such people and endeavored to share the gospel with them, where in the world do you start? And then not only where do you start, but Uh, Where do you lead that conversation, then bring it to a successful conclusion? And all of that is found, modeled for us in Paul's uh, sermon. 
We saw last week that Paul began his sermon uh, to them by commending them for the fact that they were uh, very religious. And sometimes we can look at religion, and that's kind of a put-down a little bit. He wasn't putting them down at all. He was commending them uh, for their willingness to uh, give consideration to the great questions in life. Questions like, where did we come from? What is the meaning and the purpose of life? He then, uh, acknowledging uh, in speaking to them, uh, he acknowledged their acknowledgement that they still might be in the dark concerning God and the worship of God represented in the fact that they had erected an altar to the unknown God. And Paul then proceeded in a wonderful introduction to any uh, uh, witnessing opportunity. He then informed them uh, that they had indeed overlooked a God, and indeed it was the true and the living God uh, that is the God to be found at the end of any honest spiritual search, the God of the Bible. And then he endeavored to clear up their ignorance of the God of the Bible by way of this sermon. And he began, as you might remember last week, by introducing him as creator, as the creator of the heavens and the earth, verse 24, and essentially arguing God's existence as the Bible does from one end to the other, his existence from creation and design. Uh, two classic examples of this, one in the Old Testament is Psalm 19. In the New Testament, probably nothing comes close to Paul's, uh, the first chapter of Paul's letter uh, to the Romans. And then Paul declared the Lord to be self-existent, that He is the giver and sustainer of life, that He isn't a God that needs to be taken care of or looked after or fed, but that He is a God who desires to take care of us, exactly the God that each of us needs. And then he further declared that knowing this about God, knowing Him as a sustainer, knowing Him as creator, as designer, uh, to understand that about God uh, gives each of us the responsibility then to seek this creator, self-existent, sustaining God, and that if we do, we will be sure to find Him because He is not far from us. And Paul then continues the sermon now in verse 29 this morning. And this morning we notice that Paul did so by declaring mankind to be the offspring, verse 29, uh, of uh, God, that is the creation of God. So he returns now, and it's fascinating to me, I may lose, you know, I, sometimes I wonder what portion of the group I'm losing each week as we're looking at this sermon, but I trust it's not very many. But he, as he returns to the subject of God as the Creator, he now narrows, and he does this deliberately, he now narrows his focus from the heavens and the earth uh, to man himself. And the point that he's making there in verse 29 is that all of these idols that filled Athens, that they were the offspring of man, that is, they were the creation of man, but that man is the offspring or the creation of God, and that we shouldn't worship what we can create. For what we can create, whether it's in the form of some kind of a physical idol or in the form of a human philosophy or in the form of some kind of backstory that we make up concerning some idol that we do create, um, that 
that what we can create is less than us by virtue of the fact that we can uh, create it. Now, the Bible teaches that not only have we been created by God, but the Bible teaches that we have been created in the image of God. And at this point, someone might rightly wonder, as you look at the world around you, if mankind was created in the image of God, given what I see of him at work and in the stores and on the highways and on the television news, then either God is really messed up or something monumentally bad has happened to mankind between the time of their creation and the present day. And if you made that observation, you'd be completely correct. And that monumentally bad event in human history is known as the fall of man. The sin of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden in disobeying God's lone prohibition to them in that garden that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they partook of that tree which then resulted in mankind's fall from the perfection we were created in to what we have been since the fall and we remain today. Well, again, as I say every so often, someone might listen to something like that and then protest, well, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden and I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I believe all of its mythology. How in the world can I know that the Bible's record of the fall of man is true? What proof is there that I'm a descendant of Adam and Eve and fallen as the Bible teaches? And it's fascinating. It's a great series of questions to ask. But it's important not only to ask the questions, but then to listen to God's answer. And the Bible gives us supremely two answers to that series of questions. First of all, the proof is found in a word, in the word death. Death reveals each and every one of us to be a descendant of that Adam and Eve from that ancient garden of Eden. It is because we die that we are connected to what occurred in the garden of Eden. Paul put it so succinctly in his first letter to the Corinthians. He said, in Adam all die. And death reveals each one of us to be a descendant of that ancient uh, Adam, and it's like a great chain that is tied to each of our ankles back through thousands or however many years of history back into that Garden of Eden, uh, tying us to that fall. But the Bible also teaches there's a second evidence for the fact that each of us are fallen descendants of Adam and Eve, and it is this thing that's called conscience. And Paul brings all of this out wonderfully in Romans chapter 2. There is the realization that each of us has as we would do a little bit of thinking about our own life and the life of the world around us. There is the realization that there is a uniform conscience within man that is, uh, exists all around the world. That, and within that conscience that murder is always wrong that stealing is always wrong, that adultery is always wrong, and that not stealing is always right, and that not murdering is always right, and that not committing adultery is always right. 
But as Paul brings out in Romans 2, one of the fascinating things about our conscience is that it is higher than our actual practice. Not one person in this world or in human history or in this room, not one single person lives up to the standard of our conscience. We all live well below our conscience. Why? And what does it reveal to us? We live below our conscience because our conscience does not have its origin in us. It must have its origin from some other place. And it is, originates in the God who created us and who is higher than us. And so our conscience testifies to the fact that, number one, we've been created by someone who is greater than us, and number two, that we have all fallen from that something higher. And all day, every day, personalize it related to your own life as I do for mine. All day, every day, that vast gulf that exists between the standard of your conscience and the life that you actually live every day is communicating to you and me, you are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen, like a great flashing neon light. That's what it speaks into our lives. It communicates that at one time man was superior to what he is now, but that he has fallen from that high and lofty place. And this truth is confirmed Every day in life, in the simplest environments within life, every time you'd hear two children playing, whether in a living room or in some kind of a daycare center, and then suddenly one of them cries out to the other, that's not fair. Where does that universal innate sense of fairness of right and wrong come from? It comes from God. And it's fascinating to realize that this great truth had a tremendous effect upon C.S. Lewis before, uh, in becoming a Christian. C.S. Lewis was not always a Christian apologist. He wasn't even always a Christian, though he was raised in a Christian home throughout his childhood and his youth. But when he reached adult life, he had no real commitment to Jesus, and so he launched out, as so many people do, into the freedoms of adult life, and he drifted toward atheism. And then he fought in World War I, and the horrific experience that was uh, his in that trench warfare of World War I, it simply cemented his atheism. There is no God, he thought, because if there is a God, he would never have allowed that kind of carnage to occur. But then later on in his life, as he wrote in his famous book, Mere Christianity, something dawned on him, and he put it this way. If a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And for many years, I refused to listen to the Christian answers to this question, because I kept on feeling whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by any intelligent power? Aren't all of your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then Lewis wrote, but then that threw me back into 
another difficulty. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be a part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? And it was the witness of conscience within him that acted so powerfully upon him. Now, let's move a little bit further into Paul's sermon. Some of you say, here, here. Now, in verses 30 and 31, Paul went on to introduce the Lord not only as creator and sustainer, as he already has, but now to introduce the Lord as judge, the one that will one day judge the earth. And he further declares, in declaring God as judge, that this future judgment, number one, is fixed, verse 31. He has appointed a day. In other words, it's inescapable. Number two, it will be universal. He will judge the entire world. Number three, it will be righteous. That is, it will be absolutely fair and absolutely just. And number four, that the only hope for us in the face of this coming judgment is obeying God's command to us to repent. Now, the subject of judgment and the, even the judgment of God is not a very popular one today, uh, is it? It certainly isn't in the secular uh, world that we live in. But today, at least if your observation is like my observation, increasingly it is diminished and neglected by even Christians. And we all know why. And we can be tempted to ignore the reality of this future judgment and its importance in speaking of it when we share the gospel in order to kind of accommodate the sensitivities of the culture and the individual that's uh, before us. In other words, we know people in general don't like to hear about coming judgment. It makes them uncomfortable. And additionally, uh, candidly, it is much more pleasant to speak about the love of God than to speak about the judgment of God. But John Stott, the famous Christian leader and author, now in heaven since 2011, famously wrote in this regard. Listen carefully to what he said. He said, many people are rejecting our gospel today not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. Many people today are rejecting our gospel not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. What does he mean by that? Well, when you have the pastor of the largest church in the United States of America declaring that he does not and will not preach about sin or judgment, that he leaves that to others because God has raised him up to pe preach positive messages, that trivializes Christianity. 
It ignores Christianity's depth, its wisdom, the necessity of its message. It trivializes and ignores the importance of the gospel. And why is that? Because if I do not recognize that there is a Creator that I am accountable to by virtue of being His creation, and if I do not recognize that I am accountable to Him because He has given me life and sustains my life, and I do not realize that one day I will be judged by Him for my sin and for the life that I have lived, then why in the world would I ever give a single thought to any offer of salvation from Him? What in the world would I need to be saved from if there is no judgment for my sin? And if there is no future judgment, no future accountability for the life that I have lived, and if I don't recognize my need for salvation, my sinful condition and the judgment that it deserves, then why in the world would I ever give any serious condition to an offer of salvation, much, much less investigate what I think is the magnificent rationale of God's salvation. We would rightly ask, I need to be saved. Saved from what? But Paul makes it clear to his audience that we are responsible for God, to God, for the life that we have lived, the idolatry that we have engaged in, the sin that we have committed, and that without trusting in Jesus, we will be judged for our sins. And thus he declares in verse 30, all men everywhere, that a, a kind of includes everybody, <laughs> all men everywhere need to repent. And that phrase, all men everywhere, brings to mind a couple of famous verses of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, Paul did not get to finish his sermon to this audience. If he had been able to finish uh, the sermon, he would have clearly called upon them to put their trust in Jesus by name for the forgiveness of their sins, but he did get as far as calling on his audience to repent, to turn away from what they believed and how they were living. The word repent means to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in life, what I'm living for, and so forth, to have a change of mind that results in a change of direction in my life. And when he calls on them to repent, uh, the idea is from what and toward what? Well, from their sin and their idolatry, to turn from sin and idolatry and then to turn to God, the God of the Bible. And the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus in human history, Paul says, removes every excuse for continuing in sin and idolatry. And so Paul writes in verse 30 that God overlooked it, but uh, not by excusing it or failing to notice men's sin, 
but rather by not punishing it as it deserved, but that that day was over now with the coming of Jesus into human history and in the light of His death, His burial, and His resurrection. As one commentator put it, he wrote, the day of judgment is coming. Life is neither, and this is what Paul was speaking and wanting to communicate to that audience. The day of judgment is coming. Life is neither a process to extinction, as it was to the Epicureans, nor a pathway to absorption to God, as it was to the Stoics. It is a journey to the judgment seat of God where Jesus Christ is judge. That's very, very good. And Paul made it clear at this point that he was not in delivering this sermon. Something really magnificent happens at that point in the sermon. He made it clear at this point that he was not there to provide entertainment for them or just intellectual stimulation a la uh, verse 21 just to be brought forward so that these men might hear something new, but that what he was speaking to them was life and death serious. And no one in human history has spoken more soberly of the judgment that one will face for their sins and supremely for the sin of rejecting salvation that is found in Jesus alone than Jesus himself. He declared, Matthew chapter 13, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it is the Bible's way of saying to man what we need to be, hear all of the time, and that is that sin is a big deal. No matter how prevalent it is in the world that we live in, no matter how prevalent it might be in our life, but it is a big deal, and it requires God's forgiveness, and it requires God's forgiveness God's way. And the way is through repenting of our sin and putting our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, I want you to notice that Paul declared Jesus to be uniquely qualified for overseeing this judgment and that he is uniquely qualified to oversee this judgment by virtue of his resurrection. And at this point, the entire sermon pivots. It is a massive pivot point that occurs. At this point, Paul ceases now. Any kind of subtlety or purely philosophical approach toward his audience. He does not lay before them now a case for the rationality of the resurrection as a philosophical position. Instead, at this point in the sermon, he boldly affirms the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to be a historical fact. And he did so knowing that in doing so, he would probably blow up the entire meeting, which it did. I am convinced that we should never think this disruption of his sermon 
on the part of some within the audience at the mention of the resurrection that this took the Apostle Paul uh, by surprise. I don't think it did. So why would he, after he so carefully built a bridge to this audience, then bring up the resurrection of Jesus and as it's something that uniquely qualifies him uh, to judge mankind for our sins, why would he even broach the subject now and run the risk of blowing up the meeting? And he did so because it is a historical and spiritual truth, whether man chooses to believe it or not. And this is where virtually all witnessing to those who are determined agnostics or determined secularists or determined atheists or philosophers, it is always where this kind of a discussion ends up. You do your best to explain the rationale of the Bible. And in my mind, nothing so explains the world that I live in every single day of the year as the first three chapters of Genesis, the record of the creation of man and the fall of man and the redemption of man. Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of man. Genesis 3, the fall of man. And then the latter part of Genesis 3, through the entirety of the book, a record of God's redemption of fallen man. It is not really a complicated book. And so we lay the rationale of the Bible before people, but we do so with the knowledge that we will never ever bring anyone into a faith in God or into salvation solely through their intellect. We will never intellectualize them into the kingdom of God. Because becoming a Christian involves not only the intellect, our reason, but also the will. A person must be willing to be convinced, and that is completely between a person and God. We can't touch that. I have long contended in my life and nothing I have ever seen in my almost 62 years in life has moved me from my conviction that all rejection of Jesus by people when presented with the gospel is because of some darkness in their lives that they recognize they would have to give up in order to follow Jesus. And they are as yet unwilling to do so. There is some sin that I'm willing to, unwilling to give up, some pride I am unwilling to give up, some position I'm unwilling to give up, some goal in life that I would have to forsake for God, some self-will to say nothing of having, uh, being required to give up a self-willed life, which is the current great addiction of our culture. But I don't think I'm on thin ice in believing this because Jesus declared in the context of the most famous verse in all of the Bible concerning salvation, John 3.16. He didn't stop there. Let me read the verses that follow it. Jesus speaking, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world for the simple reason that it's already condemned, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then here it is. And this is the condemnation, that the light, speaking of himself, has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come uh, to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds might be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Those listeners on Mars Hill who broke up the meeting at the mention of Jesus' resurrection were not being intellectually honest in doing so. They broke up the meeting because Paul hit too close to home when he spoke of the resurrection. It wasn't that they couldn't believe, but they did, that they did not want to believe. Because Paul will later declare to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 concerning the rationale of the resurrection, he declared to Agrippa, for why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? In other words, in the flow of the sermon that Paul gives here on Mars Hill, if, as he has already laid out to these philosophers, God is the creator and he is the sustainer of both man and the universe, as Paul has declared, truths that they had expressed no objection to, then why would it be so hard for such a God to resurrect someone from the dead? Now, ultimately, in all this kind of sharing of our faith with this kind of environment and, and with this kind of person, we must come to a place where we simply deliver the message of the gospel to them. We remove obstacles and misconceptions that they might have concerning the Bible and Christianity, but nobody gets saved apart from hearing the gospel. And there comes that point in sharing where we must share the gospel with them. God's offer of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, a personal relationship with Him, and then we leave them to God, trusting God to bear witness to that truth in their hearts in the same way that He did for us. And so He will do to every person who desires the truth concerning the big questions in life and then to be freed from the great burdens in life of guilt and emptiness and loneliness. And Paul wrote concerning this that God is not willing, or Peter did, not willing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance. When that message of the gospel Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our sins and the forgiveness of our sins, when that message is delivered into a human heart, the Holy Spirit will work as hard to confirm that in their heart as ever He did in any of our hearts. And if you're not yet saved here 
this morning. If you allow God, you say, maybe you're in a church here this morning, and you wonder, what is God's will for my life? If you will allow God to have His will concerning your life, you will end up putting your trust in His Son for the forgiveness of your sins and end up being saved and beginning a relationship with God, but God will never force you to do that. You alone control your eternal destiny. He is not willing that any should perish. That's His will for every human life. But our will is very much involved, and supremely so, in where we end up in eternity and whether we have a relationship with God or not. And when you one day stand before Jesus, and you will one day stand before Jesus, it's more sure than the seat that you're sitting on. Jesus desires that in that environment that you will be able to look upon Him as your Savior and not as your judge. And immediately after our services, which is just a service, which is just a minute or two away from concluding here, there will be men and women up in front, pastors as well, who would love to pray with you to receive Jesus Christ into your life and to be born again by the Holy Spirit and begin the relationship with God. It's a spiritual birth to begin the relationship with God that you have been created for. Paul wrote concerning the gospel. Jesus declared concerning the gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, And moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you have received, and in which you stand, and by which you are saved, for if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This same Paul wrote in his first letter, his only letter to the Romans and declared, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek and then the words of our Savior Jesus again in John 3:16, For God so loved the world, that's you, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe in Him, that is in Jesus, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now let me close, as I promised you, with just a moment looking at the three responses of Paul uh, to Paul's sermon here. Some, verse 32, mock the idea of resurrection. Others uh, profess an open mind. Or they w were interested in hearing more, uh, and, but they procrastinated, which is never a good idea because today's the day of salvation because today's the day, only day that we have. No other day is, is promised to us. And then in verse 34, some believed and as a result of this sermon, for all of the ups and downs, the interruption, the whole thing, God's Spirit was honored enough that some became born again and they became followers of Jesus right on the spot. 
a man by the name of Dionysius who was described as an Areopagite, and the Areopagites were a council of 30 men, the greatest philosophers, again, that existed in uh, the ancient world at that time, and he was one of those men. One of the aristocratic intellectuals of Athens became a Christian on the spot a woman by the name of Damaris. We know nothing else about her, and we know less still about several others with them that put their faith in Jesus. Some Bible commentators take note of what they consider to be kind of like a meager response in Athens to Paul's preaching uh, of this sermon in comparison to the greatness of the crowds that responded, for instance, in Thessalonica or uh, in uh, Berea. If it, it, it didn't look in, in their minds as the commentators commentate on these things like a whole lot of fruit compared uh, to these other cities, perhaps five to ten people saved. But honestly, I don't know a preacher alive who wouldn't be satisfied with five to ten people saved every time he preached the gospel. I don't think Paul was disappointed, and I certainly know that these new Christians were not. They were happy for the effort that Paul took in that environment, in that scene, to preach that gospel, perhaps knowing that it would only be listened to by a comparatively small, but to know that it might make a difference in the hearts of some. And that's the interesting thing about preaching and sharing the gospel or witnessing with people is we never know what the result might be, but we do know that it will make a difference for some, and we do it for the sake of that uh, some. It's not our responsibility to save the whole world. It's our responsibility as Christians to just deliver the message of God's offer of salvation to people and then ultimately to leave the result between them and God. When I look at this salvation uh, story here and what goes on in the preaching of the sermon here in Athens, it all, and, and then the response of a relatively few uh, within Athens and the criticism that is sometimes brought against Paul as a result of it, it always reminds me of an old story that I once heard. And I close with that story is an old man walked down a Spanish beach at dawn. He saw ahead of him what he thought to be a dancer. A young man was running across the sand rhythmically, bending down to pick up a stranded starfish and throwing it far into the sea. And the old man gazed in wonder as the young man again and again threw the small starfish from the sand into the water. The old man approached him and asked why he spent so much energy doing what seemed to be a waste of time. And the young man explained that the stranded starfish would die if left until the morning sun. And the old man responded, but there must be thousands of miles of beach and millions of starfish. How can your efforts make any difference? And the young man looked down at the small starfish in his hand as and as he threw it safely into the sea, he said, it makes a difference to this one. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Father, thank you for the recording this sermon of Paul's in, in Athens and how wonderfully it speaks to us as Christians today and the world around us and the country around us and the changes that are going on all around us. We thank you this morning for the power of the gospel. Thank you that nothing depends solely upon our words, but upon you, Lord, and the witness, the supernatural witness that you bring to your gospel in a human heart. And Lord, we pray for us as a church that you would help us and, pre and we pray for ourselves individually before you that you would help us not to feel overwhelmed by the size of the need or even the scope of the rejection of the gospel in our hour, but, Lord, to continue to share in obedience to your word as someone did for us so that we might hear this good news and be saved. And then to know that, Lord, as futile as it can seem at times, that it will make a difference, that there is the Dionysius, there is the Damaris, there is the handful of others who are willing to listen and to have their lives in eternity changed. Lord, we pray for the sake of those people who live in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our city and in our workplace, that you would keep our mouth open and speaking this wonderful, wonderful invitation that you have given in your Son for salvation. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.